0: Welcome to the podcast for A Better Life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Kenneth Kopp about his life in Mennonite and Amish communities. Kenneth Kopp lives in Maine, works as a carpenter, building furniture, and tending his farm. After spending years in Mennonite and Amish communities, he is now an atheist, or as he has dubbed himself, an Amish atheist. I asked him about his journey, starting with his upbringing in Virginia.
1: I grew up in northern Virginia, near Washington, D.C., in a small town called Vienna, Virginia, which actually now has grown considerably. It's more or less a, a suburb of D.C. Mm-hmm. the time, it was much smaller. And uh, my parents initially were uh, staunch Lutherans, in fact, uh, they were charter members of one of the first Lutheran churches in the area. They donated a couple acres of their land uh, to build a church and have a parsonage there. But uh, then in the mid to later 60s, 1960s, they uh, got involved in the Pentecostal movement, my mother especially, with the phenomena called speaking in tongues. And uh, the Lutheran minister didn't appreciate that much and more or less uh, politely uh um, um, Kicked them out. <laughs> uh, my mom was trying to infiltrate the Lutheran church with her new ideas, and he didn't want that. So my parents started searching, and they went from church to church. At one point, my dad, who was not as much religious as my mom, was ready to give up, and my mom was not. So we kept going until we found the uh, Assembly of God in Arlington, Virginia, uh, Assembly of God denomination, and and that was a pretty dynamic church that they liked. And Sort of one of those, quote, churches for the whole family. And uh, so that's kind of where we stayed. And that was from about seven years of age for me until I left home. That's what my parents associated with. So it was mostly what I know and remember in my formative years. And my mother was a very, like I said, fervent believer. Some of my first memories of her was uh, coming downstairs from, from in the morning, waking up and coming down and seeing her praying or reading her Bible, she uh, I think read the Bible through over twenty times or more. Um, sometimes I think she was trying to break a record, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but she believed it fervently. She had had experiences in her life, uh, very young life, when her mother died when she was I don't know thirteen or fourteen years old, and some supposed miraculous experiences over that period. And she wanted to be that that faithful child that her mother wanted her to be, and she passed it on to us, us children. And I, I got a double portion of that, I suppose. And, uh, so I was a real fervent young man. Uh, other words, I mean, I still, I got into some trouble, uh, at, at one point I, I ran with the kind of the wrong crowd at, at the church and we did some, uh, rather naughty things, uh, just basically prankster things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, then, then, uh, I, um, they They showed a film there, one of those frightening films about the rapture. if you're familiar with that term in the Pentecostal circles they they believe in what they call a rapture where Jesus will come and remove all the believers instantaneously off the earth and if you happen to be driving a car and you're a believer why the car will just crash or if you're a pilot in a plane and you're a believer, you'll be taken away and the plane will crash and there'll be chaos for a while and then all the unbelievers will be left uh, behind and the antichrist will rise up and everyone will have the mark of the beast so forth Mm -hmm. and these movies and films were just oh it was terrorizing because if you miss the rapture and then you uh, um you you can convert after the rapture but it's a lot harder and you most likely uh, lose your life because if you take the mark of the beast you'll be damned forever so you can't do that and so they run around police try to run around try to catch the the believers that are refusing the mark and, and chop their heads off in, in the public square. Uh, and uh, oh, it was just terrifying. And I remember going into the prayer room after that meeting and just weeping and crying and asking the Lord to forgive me of my sins. I, I thought I'd been a Christian, but I, I want to make doubly sure that I was not going to miss the rapture and I'm going to, just go, to go to heaven. Uh, so that was a change in my life to where I I began to much more fervently serve the Lord and, and stay away from all the the bad crowd of, of the church, and uh, and get do all the things that that I I believed and was taught that God wanted us to do.
0: So you were you were basically scared into believing, even more so at that point.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I had a desire when I was young to serve the Lord as just as because I thought you know the Bible was good. We were taught God was good, but but this was. Um, Well, you know, the Bible is full of that. Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in Proverbs. And the fear meaning uh, the reverence and the respect and actually trembling with fear because God is a a righteous judge. And if you disobey him, then obviously you're going to suffer his punishment, which we were taught was the flames of hell and everlasting fire. It's a a strange dichotomy when I look back at it now. You know, we're supposed to love this, this God who who will punish us with the eternal punishment if we don't love him? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, uh, that's that was what I did. And, and then at that point, I began to feel like the young people in the Assembly of God were not as fervent as they should have been. They they would have their prayer meeting and services. Uh, we had youth meetings, lots of meetings, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday prayer meeting, and then youth meetings. It was just constantly going, it seemed like. And, but, but, but after the meeting, they would often gather around their cars and chat before they go home. And they talk about fast race cars and the football games and the latest uh, radio song. And, and I just didn't feel that that was becoming of a Christian. We should be not seeking those things of the world. We should be seeking the righteousness of Christ and speaking of, of saving souls and, and his, the work of the kingdom. And so during that time, I, I had an old, much older brother my only brother who had associated with the Mennonites uh, some years previous. And, and he came home from time to time and would talk with me, uh, much to my parents' chagrin. They didn't really want him associating with me because they were afraid he might influence me to his radical viewpoints, which he in fact did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He, he, he taught me or told me about this, the, the concept of a true church, uh, of a one true church away from all the confusion of all the other churches, and a church that had the spirit of god the the blessing of god and it was exclusively god's church above all others and uh this kind of uh infected my mind and i began to buy into it and and it was also because they they, they represented a much more peaceful quiet life not this ecstatic holy roller type uh stuff that that and and, and the things that i was seeing like i mentioned with the young people that. The, the youth and the Mennonites were much more subdued and, and sincere and quiet. Uh, I had a few problems with the fact that they had restrictions such as no musical instruments and such. But once I got past that, uh, I, I, was, I was really ready to, to be a part of them. Uh, and it was also um, some, you know, reading their literature, their periodicals. Uh, and especially one book that most of your listeners probably wouldn't know about is called The Martyr's Mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a compilation. Uh, uh, it was compiled back in the 1600s by a Mennonite bishop in Holland. And he basically uh, compiled it to include all the martyrs from the time of Christ to his time in 1660 of the defenseless Christians. That, that is something Everyone who's listening should know that one of the primary or cardinal teachings of the Anabaptists, which includes the Amish and Mennonites, is the teaching of non-resistance. And that comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says, uh, turn the other cheek to those that smite you. Love your enemies, do good to those that hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And so the Mennonites have been legendary in, in Amish in with, withstanding any sort of warfare or suing at law they're not litigious, um and uh so this martyr's mirror was made up of all the stories that the, the author could could gather of christians that were deemed defenseless they called defenseless christians mm-hmm. um and uh and that was instrumental i mean it's a very thick book probably about three inches thick and uh 10 by 14 uh, and every Mennonite and Amish home has one generally it's it's almost like an icon but it is very interesting stories uh, you know starting from Christ and the Apostles on up to his time and had a lot of stories of the horrible persecutions that went on especially in the medieval ages in the 1500s when the Anabaptists began to form and separate from the uh, Catholic state churches and Lutheran state churches and such like and they were you know we think ISIS is bad now but it was horrible back then i mean many of the anabaptist forefathers were burned alive at the stake or beheaded or broken or tortured horribly and this is uh, a very integral part of their faith that they it's almost like in their dna uh, a sort of a martyr complex from their forebears and they have you know almost uh, right to feel that way because it was a horrible time and then of course uh, as time went on, the persecution subsided by the 1700s, and then the new world opened up here in America, and many began to migrate over here to America, where there was total religious freedom, or mostly so. Uh, and that's how the mennonites and Amish uh, got roots and, and spread, spread here in America.
0: What are some of the main differences that you saw between the, the Pentecostal church, where you spent most of your time growing up, and the Mennonite church that you, you went to? What, what were the main differences between the two of them?
1: Uh, in a sense, there were some similarities in that they, they both uh, believed the Bible is the inspired word of God. So in that sense, they were fundamental. But the Pentecostals did a lot more of adjusting to the social climate of the day, uh, like, take, for instance, Paul's uh, commands that a woman be silent in church and is not permitted to speak, or that she should wear a head covering in subjection to her their, her husband, and the husband, of course, his head is the Christ, who is head of the church, and so forth, the, what they call the order of headship. Uh, the assemblies of God and those type of churches will uh, rationalize that away and say that that was for back then in Paul's day and it's not for us today. Or when it comes to that cardinal teaching of non-resistance and not going to war, they would uh, make that optional because they use other scriptures that, well, they would go back to the Old Testament and say, well, David fought wars um, and such like, whereas the, the Mennonites and Amish made a clear uh, delineation between the old and new testament the old covenant the new covenant and wherever jesus changed the old covenant and the new that's what we're to follow today and that was one of those things in matthew chapter 5 jesus says ye have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say unto you to resist not evil so in that that point they feel that jesus is changing the old law to the new law of of love and non-resistance and loving your enemies and and that type of sort of a peaceful kingdom of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they take the view of the thousand-year reign, which is in the book of Revelations, as actually happening symbolically now when a person becomes a Christian. They, they enter into that peaceful kingdom of Christ, and they no longer fight or war. They, they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, as it says there in Isaiah. Um, and then, of course, the, the big difference that most everybody sees and observes is the outward form. A lot of the conservative men, especially the Amish, have a distinct form of dress. Uh, they've, what they've done through the years is try to, uh, as styles come and go in the general society, they've taken the more conservative styles and held on to them and rejected the more uh, liberal styles. Uh, one instance is the, um, the men's pants. Uh, back in the 1830s or before that time were more of a broadfall type pants where it has a big broad flap instead of a zipper but then later by the 1850s or 60s or so it it, it changed to the zipper pants and the Amish uh, felt like that was more of an immod- immodest design so they retained the the flat broadfall pants style mm-hmm. or take for instance the women's head covering and the bonnets uh, from the Victorian era they took the more, most conservative Era and and retained that, and when everybody else was discarding them, they they kept them. So that's why you see the the women with bonnets going. If you're in an area where the Amish live, you'll see the bonneted women or the the men with the beards and the suspenders and broadfall pants or or the big black hat. Um, uh, It's all they they believe that it's their part of being separate from the world. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, and, of course, that's subject to interpretation, but they take a, a, a strong uh, stance in that, that anything that uh, lends itself to uh, lustful thoughts or, or whatever, um, then that should be avoided. And women especially have the severe dress of a special type dress, um, more, more so to keep men from lusting after them. It, it, in a way, it's sort of like a lot of other groups. Even, even the Islamic uh, people, they, they, they take it to a great extreme with their uh, hijab and or the uh, burqa, uh which where they almost cover the woman entirely. Well, the, the Amish Mennonites aren't nearly as severe in that respect, but it's still sort of the same concept.
0: It reminds me a lot, actually, of uh, very orthodox or Hasidic Judaism, but it's, it's a Christian form of that.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. And I've been surprised uh, when I was leaving religion, there was a, a Orthodox Jew, not Hasidic, but Orthodox. And he came to me and uh, had been attending the Amish church here in, in, in Maine. And uh, um, he uh, um, uh, told me about his Hasidic relatives in, in New York City and actually showed me a video about the history. And I was astonished at how similar the concepts were, although there was you know some stark differences because they're Jews and don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But yet there were so many similarities in their um, insular way of, of keeping their people in, in a religious bubble. It was ex- very much like the Amish concept.
0: That more conservative lifestyle grew more appealing to you over time, right?
1: Yes, I, I was sort of a non-conformist, you conformist know, You know, it's a typical youth. Uh, they, they tend to react to their background and want to do something different. And I, and I did that through religion, I suppose. Uh, and, uh, and, and then when you convert and as fervent as I was, I mean, I was 110%. I wanted to go above and beyond. Um, I suppose had I been in a, so maybe a Catholic, uh, upbringing, I might've wanted to be a priest. I don't know for a monk, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was really appealing to me. The more ascetic it was, the more it was appealing because it, it seemed like, you know, why do we have to have all these trappings of the world? I, I was so Tired of all the men in, in the Pentecostal church. They're very stylish. They were the latest and the greatest and ties and suits and and colorful things. And, you know, back in the 70s, it was those uh, plastic nylon shirts, sort of like, and and, and double knit uh, pants and bell bottoms. And the best thing I love to do when we got home from church, just get rid of those clothes and get in my jeans and T-shirt, natural fibers and play outside. Mm-hmm. Uh and so the Amish or the conservative Mennonites uh, provided that outlet in a religious form, and that they rejected those flamboyant styles of the world for a more plain and consistent uh, pattern of dress. That that was predictable. I mean, you had a uniform basically, and and you didn't have to decide between ten dozen pairs of shoes or or thirty dresses or you know, 20 shirts, what you're going to wear, what type of tie. You just had the basic same. Maybe you had a good set for church and maybe slightly nicer, but usually, you know, when when, when it was worn out for church, you wore it for every day. Uh, so it was basically serviceable clothing, and that made just a lot of sense to my practical mind.
0: The initial Anabaptist group that you were with was more modern, and you you decided that wasn't that was too modern for you, so you decided to go even more conservative to a more conservative uh, group. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, it took some time. I had uh, first uh, wanted to be a part of this exclusive church of my brothers, but then I realized that uh, it wasn't for me. They were just, um, I I was, uh, thankfully, I was alert enough to realize this doesn't make sense, that they could be the one only church. And there were other Mennonite and Amish churches that had just as much what I consider the blessing of God as they might have. So I began searching, and I, and I just went amongst a plethora of uh, or myriad of groups. Some were very old order, uh, horse and buggy, and that was very attractive to me because I loved history. And I nearly, at one point, early on joined with them. But then the biggest thing was the, the, the teaching of evangelism. Uh, the modern church, usually the Pentecostals and evangelicals believe that we should spread the gospel to all cre- all creatures, all people. And uh, I didn't feel like the old orders had that, that they were doing that. So I went to a more moderate group, which is sometimes called Amish Mennonite because they have sort of an Amish background, but they've, they've left the more stricter forms and are more modern and also especially uh, more pointedly, they are evangelistic. So mm-hmm. they'll have outreach work where they'll go to colleges and pass out gospel tracts or have a prison ministry and, and try to get people converted and join the church. And that was all very attractive to me. So I wanted the conservative lifestyle, the dress and so forth, but I also wanted evangelism. And that seemed to be the, the niche that, that I I found with, with this conservative uh, Mennonite church.
0: Where did technology fit into this? Was the group that you're with, did they use technology or was that also shunned?
1: Uh, All groups use technology. It's just a matter of some use less or more than others. Uh, Where I initially went, they had the basic modern conveniences of telephone, electric and automobiles. But they shunned the the television and radio because they and they also didn't allow higher education. Uh, They had their own uh, church schools and the children only went to eighth grade. And the curriculum that was used was uh, uh, only produced by Mennonite publishing houses, so it had a sort of a skewed version of history as well as uh, science was very poor, um, and uh, and 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 they they don't allow the television, and radio because uh, naturally that would bring in influences that could derail their their sensitive young people, mm-hmm. uh, and and that means they they keep their people indoctrinated in their. In their religious bubble. That was in the 1980s and there was no internet. So uh, TV and radio were the big uh, the biggies that uh, are the big ones uh, issues that we would have had. And of course reading material was also restricted. We, we didn't allow uh, generally no one took a daily newspaper although occasionally someone might pick one up uh, and books were very carefully screened. Uh, no romance books uh, or, or, or any books that like, take for instance, the Harry Potter books. I don't even know if they were around at the time, but the Tolkien books surely were. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have been considered um, demonic or a possible influence to uh, demonic activity, with all the wizards and witches or and such like that are portrayed in that in that series.
0: What caused you to to then go to an Old Order Amish at that point?
1: Well, it 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 actually was a lot slower process. I was with the, these conservative Mennonites for nearly 10 years, and then. Um, uh, I, we, I, I moved my family to uh, a more conservative uh, Mennonite uh, group in, in, in Tennessee, and I, I still consider them probably the most strictest car-driving Mennonite church in, in the world. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're probably in some way stricter than the Amish in their, in their tight, tight-knit groups. Um, and that was good. We, we for a while that was, a, and I was a very. Uh, uh, nice as far as a, a brotherhood and, and sharing, and everybody cared for everyone. Uh, and I, we were there for again another 10 years, or not quite. And during that time, I began to look further, and and I began to consider uh, the way that we live. My my, my initial fervor of the rapture that I spoke of earlier began to wane. Jesus hadn't come back in the 1980s as was predicted in my Pentecostal background, and he didn't come later in other predictions. And I began to rationalize it. What if he wouldn't come back until 50 years from now or 100 years from now? And I also had come under the influence of more liberal Mennonite writings that were beginning to uh, delve into uh, environmentalism and the concern of caring for the earth, which Mm – as you know, the Bible says very little on, and in the past history of Christianity, they were more or less the conquer and have dominion over the earth. They didn't think much about preserving the earth, but modern, more modern Christians have adopted the, the environmentalism call because they see it makes sense. And so they search for scriptures uh, to, to support that view. And there are a few scriptures, like in Revelations, it says that God will destroy those that destroy the earth. Or you could go from the Garden of Eden that God told Adam and Eve to dress it and to care for it and not to destroy it, and so from those points I became concerned. Uh, I, my dad had been uh, had worked for the National Park Service for many years, and he instilled within us children a love for nature, and uh, and I also had that 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 deep abiding interest in an old order uh, horse and buggy simple way of life. So it it, it began to work on my mind, <clears throat> and I began to have a deep desire to. Uh, unite with a group like that and it was quite a struggle because it's hard sometimes to switch from one One group to another sometimes they don't they don't readily permit that and the more stricter group you go to The more careful they are and and you have to get permission You can't just up and move away You have to ask permission if you may move and then maybe they don't really like where you're going and they want to approve it um or they'll let you go, but they'll warn others to not take this route. You know, they'll let them, this family go, but it's not really recommended. Well, I finally got it through after much difficulty, and we moved to an old order uh, Amish church in southwest Virginia. Uh, and that was quite an experience. It was more or less like moving to another country uh, because the people were different. The dress was somewhat different. The language, of course, was Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, which... I had resisted for years to learn, thinking that, you know, in, as a part of evangelism, we should speak the language of the of the country we live in. But as I began to treasure the, the history of the Anabaptist movement and the way of life, I realized my options were limited to find a group that only used English. And I began to also take an interest in the old hymns of the Anabaptist forefathers that were all still in German. And so I dove right in and, and decided to learn the language and and learn to read and so i learned both pennsylvania Deutsch as well as um fluently as well as um uh, learned the high german that was in the old hymn books that, that's different than today's german um it, it you know language has evolved so i i can read the the scriptures the martin luther translation quite well as well as this old hymns but when it comes to a german newspaper of today i am I'm pretty well lost.
0: What did your your parents and your brother? What did they think about your transition, getting progressively more conservative in your religiosity?
1: Well, of course, my parents were greatly disappointed to begin with because they had hoped, uh, as the as their youngest child, that I would uh, choose to uh, join and be a you know faithful member the rest of my life with the Pentecostal Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, when they saw that I was very determined to take this this route, they they sort of begrudgingly gave gave me their blessings and let me go. And first, of course, I was living with my brother because I was barely 18 at the time. And then I went through my searching period and ended up joining around 20 years old into this conservative Mennonite group and marrying and then having a family. And they sort of softened and began to actually appreciate what we were doing, though they themselves never never went that far. And then as I began increasingly becoming more increasingly uh, conservative and strict in, in the groups that we were with. Um, uh, I don't know. They, they, they more or less figured I knew what I was doing and accepted me. Anyhow, by the time I, I moved to the older Amish, my parents were getting rather old and my mother passed away uh, the year that we moved. So she really didn't even get to visit us in the Amish community. My dad did several times though. Uh, and we really appreciated that and he would have uh, visited us more often, but he died four years after my mom. So,
0: but that was permissible for him to visit. You, you, you didn't have to sever ties with the rest of your family.
1: No, no, not in that respect. No, no, they, 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 they allow, uh, relatives to come visit or you go to visit relatives, but there's the difference differentiation is that, well, I guess if, if your parents that were not Amish or not Mennonite lived right in the general area, then uh, naturally speaking, you wouldn't want your if you're a fervent Mennonite or Amish, you wouldn't want your children to be associating, say, with their non-Amish or non-Mennonite cousins, mm-hmm. uh, because it might be a undue influence to leave them or lead them away from the faith. So there's uh, depends on the dynamics there. There can be there can be some some strain and, and and tension.
0: And you were married and you had children, is that right?
1: Yeah, I had ten children.
0: You had ten children.
1: Yeah. The Amish and Mennonites have a uh, have a high birth rate. Uh, they take the, the 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 commandment at every at every wedding. It's always preached, amongst other things, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so, uh, you know, if you're healthy and well, uh, families of eight, ten, twelve, sometimes fifteen or more children are are not uncommon.
0: So, what was the next progression for you? You were in this old order Amish, very conservative. What what started to happen to your
1: Well, um, to begin with, we we moved to an Old Order Mennonite uh, settlement, which, (laughs) if your head isn't spinning already, it will...
0: Yeah, all these uh, terms, uh, I don't
1: know. (laughs) uh, Well, fairly similar. Like I say, the Mennonites and Amish are are both uh, in the same family of faith. The the difference being, uh, uh, through the years, like any denomination, there's splits and divisions. Mm -hmm. I should have mentioned this perhaps in the beginning. But initially, uh, they were called Mennonites after a a leader called Menno Simons, who had been a Catholic priest and then uh, defected from the Catholic Church and joined with the the group, which were called Anabaptists in in Europe, which basically means re-baptizers. They they believed in adult baptism instead of infant baptism. Uh, In other words, that it should be a free church made up only of voluntary adult believers, which at the time was very radical and I think in its own way was a, a free-thinking uh, method, and they suffered, of course, greatly for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, oh, a hundred or so years later, as persecution subsided and they sort of became more lax in their in their um, fervor, uh, another uh, Mennonite bishop broke away from the main group to be even more conservative, and his name was Jacob Ammen. And that's where the name Amish comes from. So they're both of the same family of faith, but one is generally more conservative than the other. Mm -hmm. However, to make things more confusing over the years, there's been splits and divisions, some going one way, some going the other. And so you actually have some Mennonites that are now called Old Order Mennonites that are actually more conservative than the Old Order Amish. And that's where we found ourselves at when my faith actually began to crumble. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a very interesting group. Uh, I like them because they used no engines being the environmental Christian environmentalist that I had become. I wanted to stay away from fossil fuels. I saw them as um, uh, harmful to the earth. And so this group used no engines. We used either horses or hand power exclusively. And that means no chainsaws for cutting our firewood. We used horses to power our, our wood shops or or feed mills or whatever. They did amazing things with with horses. Uh, I, I befriended a, a man out there. This was in Missouri where we had moved to this Mennonite group, uh, who was not Mennonite. Uh, he uh, was actually a photographer that we met through going to get our passports. Uh, the, this particular Mennonite group had settlements down in Central America and we were thinking of going to visit them, which was encouraged to do to, to encourage other believers in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never got that done, but but we had gone for our passport pictures. And for some reason, this gentleman and I uh, hit it off quite well. Um, I had one time in my youthful days, uh, aspired to be a photographer. And I don't know exactly why our friendship developed as it did, but it did. And at one point, I, I, I asked him what he believed. And, well, he didn't really want to say. And I pressed him, well, he said, when I tell people, they either want to they either shun me or want to convert me. And uh, I promised him I wouldn't try to do that, but uh, I did, actually. But but he did tell me that he didn't believe in anything. So he was the first, as far as religious-wise, so he was the first real atheist that I'd ever met. And the strange thing of it was that he was so kind to us. He was the one that helped us more than anyone to load our trucks uh, for moving Far away, and then he also even volunteered. Since we didn't have an automobile, he volunteered to drive our family way up here, you know, 1,700 miles up to Maine, and all he charged us was for the gas. Wow, nothing more. And I was puzzled how a a, a person that we considered, um, you know, an, an unbeliever whose only um, only destiny is hell and the lake of fire, how he could be so kind and respectful. And this, along with my, my disenchantment with what had happened to us, began to work on me. And I, and, and I kept up the communication with him. Um, and, and over time, we, we would call back and forth. Uh, the, the Amish here in, in Maine um, had, are more modern, and they have little sheds where they have their telephones. And so occasionally I would call him, and we would talk and chat. And we always sort of spar back and forth with things about the faith. And we got on the issue of, say, um, evolution and creation, and and I thought I could convince him surely in this because it's evident that there's a master mind behind all that we see. But but he just continually turned my my arguments around and I began to see how that I really hadn't studied the issue very well. And I also at that time sort of secretly had been tapping into the Internet, which, of course, was forbidden by the Amish, but I was so my 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 mind had been uh sort of uh, what's the word um peaked for interest to to learn more and so he recommended that i I search various uh things on the internet, one of which was the series by a man named R Ra on the foundational falsehoods of creationism mm-hmm. When I watched those youtube series it it just really opened my eyes to see how unfounded the creation story was. And all the myths that we had believed about evolution. It was almost the very opposite. And it made so much more sense to me of a, of a slow natural evolvement. And that's that along with other things, um, it just seemed like one thing after the other was being knocked out from underneath my feet.
0: Where were you able to get online? If you had to go to the, the, the shack to use the phone, how were you able to get on the Internet?
1: Well, uh as they say, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, and, or, or the other term is necessity is a mother of invention. Well, there was a, uh, a cellular store in town, just local store, just four miles away that sold um, cell phones as well as um, uh, a few other devices. And I became friends with this uh, storekeeper and she sort of uh, became my confidant and, uh, um, and learned of my interest and desire to know more. And she sort of helped me by getting me a Samsung tablet that could be, uh, wireless, you know, on, on the, on the network system. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I went so far, she went so far as just putting the charges under her name. So it wouldn't come under my name, uh, because even my family couldn't know this. Uh, I, I would have in a way wanted them to know, but I didn't want to get in trouble. And, and, you know, if your family's not on board with it, then and if it comes out, then it's the game's over. So I had to keep it quiet. And I had this little Samsung tablet, which, of course, gave me access.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: The the internet is sort of like the Gutenberg press. It's it's it has a way of changing a person's mind. And I think that's what happened, especially with me. I mean, I, I probably might might have come to it, uh, anyway, had I just gone to the library and read books, which I did get some books, I, the one book that was instrumental in a sh- bit of a shake-up to me was Karen Armstrong's book titled The History of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had not known that there could be a history of God because God always was in, in my training. But she helped me to realize you know, how th- it's quite different than that.
0: I think a lot of us who didn't grow up in conservative religious settings or didn't who haven't lived in conservative religious environments You kind of take information for granted you take access to information for granted You take the ability to just turn on your computer or even have a computer or have a tablet for granted And so to hear stories like that where you really had to risk So much in order just to get access to information and people helped you under the table to have that access I mean, that's just incredible
1: yeah, sometimes I was really fearful. You know, the, the the saying in the religious circles, I think it's even in the Bible, it says, be sure your sin will find you out. And for a while there, as I began dabbling, I thought, surely my sin will be found out. Some, some way someone will know. But it actually took a very long time. I, I had this; these devices for probably close to 10 years uh, before that um, it, w- it came out that I had them. And, uh, and I suppose, you know, the damage was done by that time. And I, I felt at first totally lost and totally awash or sort of a person out at sea with no way to steer. I, I, I didn't know what was happening. It was, it, was, it was like a, I don't know, it was a surreal experience. And I was almost in a daze for a while. But then I finally leveled out and also, you know, had other sources of books. Uh, in fact, I, I, it was a free, once I, once I went through the initial shock, um, of realizing that that there is no God, as far as we know, um, that I began to feel a sense of freedom. It was a slow, slow experience, but it it began to increase more and more to where that I, at, at one point, I, if I dare use a religious term, I I, I marvelled, began to marvel at my former blindness. Hmm. That's where I began to realize, you know, that that something had happened, and and one specific experience. I remember coming in one day from work and I'd come in to get a drink at the sink and there was a mirror in front of the sink and I had my straw hat on and my, I was, you know, had my typical Amish beard and, and dress. And I looked in the mirror and looked at myself and, and thought, you know, I don't believe this anymore, but, 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 but I look like an Amish person still. And, and then the, the musing thought came to me, which almost, it it came so suddenly, it almost made me chuckle, but I, I kept it to myself. that, you know, I guess I'm, I'm an Amish atheist. And I, I was pondering that that term, how, that, how incongruent that seems. Uh, but, but it seemed to kind of fit in a, in, a, in a funny way. And then sometime later, I went out to visit uh, one of our children that remained with the Old Lord of Mennonites in, in Missouri uh, when we moved away. And I also talked with an author. I don't know if you've heard of the, Dr. Daryl Ray. Yeah, I know Daryl. Yeah, and uh, he wrote various books that were deeply influential to me, um, and uh, I uh, I, vi- I visited him in his home, mm-hmm. and uh, as we were visiting, he related to me that the last major religion that he had been a part of before he came out fully as an atheist was the Quaker faith, mm-hmm. and how he still really appreciated the Quakers in a lot of ways, especially some of their there are things like their weddings and so forth, which I hardly know anything of. But he, he appreciated it. And he said, and I call myself a, um, a Quaker atheist because of that. Hmm. And my mouth nearly dropped open when he said that because I had been pondering this term of, uh, uh, to depict or to, to um, portray or to describe myself as an as Amish atheist. And uh, I told him that. And he said, well, yeah, it makes sense. You know, you still you still like the traditions uh of what you have had or you know been associated with for so many years but you just don't buy the religion or the superstitious part any longer
0: what was it like when you finally came out so to speak as being uh, an atheist and wanting to uh not practice religiously at least the the amish lifestyle
1: well to say the least it was very traumatic uh because one of my older sons still at home um began to suspect something about me and he uncovered some of my, my forbidden um, technology. And um, he, he, instead of coming to talk with me about it, he, he made the mistake of going to the ministry and talking to them about it, as well as confessing some of his own uh, private sins. Um, one of which your audience might be interested uh, uh, is masturbation uh, in, in, in the conservative Settings like this, they believe masturbation to be sinful,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and uh, and it's something that almost, well, not often is is found out, but it's more or less self-confessed because a person sort of hits a religious guilt wall and they feel so terrible and dirty inside for what they're doing or allowing themselves to do, and so they, they the only way they can really find peace often is to go and confess it, and if a young man confesses that to a, to the church leaders, then they will excommunicate the poor poor boy. I don't. I've never known it to happen to to girls. I don't, I don't know exactly why that was, but it was hmm. almost often boys, and can imagine the traumatic experience that must be to their to their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my son was, of course, excommunicated. But but in the process, I was sort of blamed as an irresponsible father because. I didn't. At that point, I had modified my view uh, to to believe and understand, especially from reading Dr. Darrell Ray's work, uh, "Sex and God," and how religion distorts our human sexuality. Mm-hmm. That the masturbation is a very natural form of, uh, of of human pleasure and is a way to discover our, our our sexual beings and how we function. And I began to see this as perfectly fine and good. So, if my son would have come to me and said, you know I'm struggling with this dad. I would have probably told him well it's it's okay it's not sinful don't worry about it I, I know I would have had to really done a lot of um explaining because the church we were with definitely condemned it. Mm-hmm. It would have had to almost been like a uh, um a secret little um agreement we had between ourselves but i and I wish he would have done that, but he didn't. He took the traditional route and talked to the ministers and of course that uh ricocheted back onto me uh and so I was and at the same time, I had also um, been so curious or distraught in my struggle to know what to do about the God issue that I had actually asked one of the ministers privately um, if he had ever doubted the existence of God. And, and to my surprise, he said he had. And to my further utter surprise, he said that he had even read some of the works of Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. Wow. He had read The God Delusion and The End of Faith, and, and I had actually seen one of these books, I think it was The End of Faith, in a bookstore here in Maine, and, and I just sort of stumbled across it in a, in a devotional section, and I picked this book up, and I began looking at it, and my hands literally started shaking. I think I started sweating because this, this seemed like horrible heresy, and I, I, I remember putting the book back on the shelf quickly and, and getting out of the store. I was just hot all over and And I, I was I just walked out of the bookstore with shame that I'd even looked at a book like that, and here one of my my ministers had actually read the book <laughs> and uh, but he quick, he went on quickly to say that but but he also read uh, Christian apologetic books um, and that got him back on track and he also said that he wouldn't recommend anyone to read those books because some people that read those books never come back.
0: When you were going through all these struggles with your faith, did you talk to your wife about what you were going through?
1: Well, um, I, yes, I did. Um, not, I didn't of course reveal to her my, my secret, um, perusal into with, with with technology because I sensed that she couldn't have handled it. She probably would have gone and told the ministers right away. I, I had, I had hoped that I could get her on board and I would sometimes, uh, suggest in a roundabout way but her reaction showed me clearly that she was not ready for this yet Mm -hmm. so we were not on the same journey together regrettably um and and then um it sort of came out rather abruptly when this happened with my son Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was sort of a a, it really blew things kind of sky high Uh, my son was excommunicated I I actually tried to uh, just sort of slowly fade out of the group. I asked to be released uh, from them. The sad thing was that it it's divided my family and it caused uh, my family to become alienated from me. And I was presented to them as an an unbeliever, uh, a person that is not to be trusted, a heretic. Uh, and, of course, in the issues with my son and the masturbatory issue, I was considered as an irresponsible father and in fact, immoral. Um, and so, I had many strikes against me. I was basically you know tarred and feathered, and there was hardly anything I could say
0: so what happened to your family you have you have ten kids. What happened to the marriage, and what happened to the children?
1: Well, by that time, uh, five of our children had already uh, married and left home. Um, so there's only five children left at home. Uh, but since my wife upheld the, the discipline of the church against me, uh, the, the church uh, basically was instrumental in, in turning the minds of the children away from their, their father. And, and I was treated more or less as uh, a necessary evil in the home um I was very much shielded from speaking anything to the children Uh, I could never just have a quiet conversation with any of them or any fellowship my my sons were um, given other jobs in other parts of the community and I was more or less alone Uh, in fact sometimes I, I begged for help in the shop and around the farm and if I complained at all then my wife would usually say, well, it was your choice, you know, to, to make this decision. I tried to tell her that it was not so much a choice as a realization. And I would give the, um, the likeness of, I was raised, you know, in my early years as a child to believe in Santa Claus. And then one time I realized it wasn't Santa Claus. It was my dad and mom that were wrapping the presents. And I didn't at that time just say, no, I don't believe in Santa Claus. I just basically realized he didn't exist. We still had fun at christmas time but it was with a different knowledge and so in this case i just realized that to the best of my knowledge there is god doesn't exist Uh, but that was just not that didn't pass Mm -hmm. Uh, and so so finally the marriage was so strained um, i felt unwanted and unhappy i was fearing for my sanity there had been an amish man that was sort of in a similar situation his issue was that he actually believed in evolution, but otherwise he believed in God. But that was enough to put him in the band for many, many years. And the poor man finally committed suicide. It was such a strain on him. And I was I was fearing my own sanity. And so I more or less bailed out, separated from my wife and uh, began another relationship. And when that happened, then my wife and family used that as an excuse to to leave and I don't know that I did everything right, but uh, later I asked her uh, uh, after they'd moved away um, if even if I would have never started another relationship would would she have left me and, and she said that she would have would have finally left me it made it been longer period but she would have finally left me she would have had the children leave and go to their siblings' homes uh, one by one and finally. She would have not desired to be with me any longer either. So so I, I might have been a bit preemptive in taking the steps I did, but I was trying to protect my my own mental stability. And I must say that aside from the sorrow of losing my family, I, I am I'm very happy. I, I'm generally a happy person. Uh I like to think of Monty Python's song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life.
0: Mm-hmm
1: and uh you know it's always someone else has it worse than you do nothing comes without a price and i had to pay a high price with the loss of my family but the freedom of the mind is so far above that um i it, it's it's priceless to be able to think for yourself to to think critically um and to accept what is obviously you know scientifically true and 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 the world seems a much uh, has a deeper meaning actually to me as many many of these have have presented it that this is the only life we have we we don't have a second life the dan barker sings a song that's somewhat using the words of robert g ingersoll uh it it, it goes this way that the, the 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 time to be happy now it, the time to be happy is now the place to be happy is here the way to be happy is to make others happy. The time to be happy is now. And then one of, the, one of the verses says, living life as though it were a mere dress rehearsal makes no reason or rhyme. The only way to appreciate the beauties all around is to take it one world at a time. <laughs> and uh, so to me, the world is much more marvelous, especially when you think of the, the universe and, and how infinitely small we are and yet here we are, being able to think about things, analyze things, and uh, the fact that we have life gives us so much purpose. And the fact that this is the only life we will have makes it more more, more um, important that we live it in such a way that uh, it can be joyous and happy and uh, that we can help others to be the, uh, experience the same.
0: To go through all of that and to come out on the other side where you are. It's just an incredible journey, and the space that you're in now, I see such joy and and happiness and excitement about life and the world, and it's just amazing to be able to see that. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining me.
1: You're welcome, and thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to visit with you, Chris.
0: Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.